Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California today. And as always, I am joined by uh, Bob Bosanko in Houston. And today we are uh, going to be talking about, uh, you know, a, a pretty common topic that you hear about us talk, you talk, that we talk about on the Green and Red podcast. We're going to be talking about environmental organizations, uh, like what sometimes, like what we call, like to call it the nonprofit industrial complex. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Sierra Club and uh, lots of uh, politics and and uh, things like that around the Sierra Club. And joining us today is uh, Michelle Macarinas and uh, Hop Hopkins. Uh, earlier this year, the Sierra Club went through a restructuring, which led to uh, uh, layoffs. Uh, it's been a, a very controversial issue in, in uh, environmental circles. Um, Michelle and Hop are two folks who were uh, sort of went through that restructuring and went through that process and have been talking about it and speaking about it. Uh, Sierra Club is just, you know, one of the oldest, largest environmental groups in the U.S. It has a very problematic history from being founded by racist John Muir to being to to things that we've heard uh, more recently from former executive director Carl Pope doing things like promoting green corporate greenwashing. Uh, and so Hop is the former director of organizations organizational transformation at the Sierra Club. He's a longtime activist, social media strategist, scholar. He's been involved in movements from HIV and AIDS to anti-globalization, food sovereignty, anti-displacement, clean energy transition. Uh, most recently, he is a, uh, has been a, a climate justice fellow and adjunct professor at Antioch University. He's, he's down in LA. And then Michelle is the former national director of campaigns at the Sierra Club. Uh, Michelle was the co-director of Movement Generation Justice and Ecology Project, which supported the formation of the Climate Justice Alliance, the Reclaim Our Power Utility Justice Project. Uh, Michelle also has worked as a union organizer and organized farm to school projects and is based here in Berkeley, same as me. Um, and I just want to thank, welcome you all to Green and Red and thank you for joining us today. Uh, I've been looking forward to this episode. Um, and yeah, thanks, Scott. Yeah. yeah. Good to be here. And thanks, Bob. And before we get into questions, I know, Michelle, that you had wanted to um, say something real quick. Um, yeah, I just wanted to um, sort of, you know, dedicate in a way this this episode to um, a friend, comrade, mentor, um, and now ancestor, Al Weinreb, um, who is a long time um kind of red black and green um you know activist um for for decades and decades who just passed last week um folks I just encourage folks to look up Al's readings and or writings he was an amazing writer um and scholar but also just really um feet on the ground head in the clouds but like hands deeply in the earth and like with the people um and worked a lot on helping us understand this moment um of this crucial energy transition and climate crisis so 
yeah, just um, gratitude to our ancestor, Al Weinreb. Rest in power. Yes. Um, and, you know, actually kind of uh, speaking about that and Al's legacy, you know, both of you come out of environmental justice and global justice and climate justice. Uh, and so, you know, maybe maybe kind of kicking kicking it off. What what did you hope to accomplish by working at the Sierra Club? Uh, coming out of like probably more like left of center, left of the Sierra Club sort of movements. Sure. Um, I mean, Hop Hop joined earlier than I did, so um, you know, part of my joining the Sierra Club was um, recognizing that our you know, justice movements, env environmental justice, um, racial justice, kind of global justice movements had been um, building a shared analysis of the crisis, you know, really understanding the roots of the climate crisis um, more deeply and, um, and that we had come together around this like framework, shared framework of a the climate crisis is not just a crisis of like needing to electrify everything, but instead it's about shifting from an extractive economy to a regenerative economy. And so I felt like with folks like Hop and others, um, there was a very strong BIPOC leadership that had been um, making great strides in the Sierra Club, I would say, over the past decade towards um, this kind of a framework and supporting the organization and in um, kind of being part of a united front. And so that was what drew me to the Sierra Club, um, that and being recruited for this you know, crucial position of the National Director of Campaigns, um, which we all saw as you know, really critical to kind of starting to solve the problem of how philanthropy is driving the movement through um, funneling dollars into you know, campaigns and programs that then, you know, create the whole shape of the movement, you know, rather than um, the people who are part of these organizations and, you know, membership bases really coming up with and, and driving that. So, um, you know, for me, it was like, and, and still is, I believe, really crucial that the Sierra Club um, be an, you know, continue to be a strong like grassroots based organization that is organizing, especially white folks, um, which is its traditional base towards a North star of a just economic trans transformation, you know, that, that can actually address the crisis that the multi, you know, multiple crises that are all connected um, that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Um, well, one, thanks a lot for having us on, on board to talk about this. And I know the focus is uh, about the Sierra Club, but I think both Michelle and I want to express that this is um, broadly should be taken as an, an, an analytical view of the larger nonprofit industrial complex, regardless of what sector it's in. Many of the same things that are happening at the Sierra Club over the past decade are the same things that are happening in many of the other um, movement sectors that the nonprofit industrial complex overlaps with. So we might be taking some examples, but I, I think they should be much broadly be taken about what's going on in the broader movement, which is a, which was a reason why we engaged um, 
Brooke and Convergence in doing the article was really to try to make sense of the moment that we were in using the, using our experience of Sierra Club as an example. And as Michelle said, and I'll try not to be repetitive, it was, it was you know, I'd gotten involved, you know, 20 some odd years ago trying to fight what we talked about is the greenhouse effect. And when I was looking around um, at organizations and wanted to have a larger impact and figure out what governance actually looked like, I looked at the Sierra Club. You know, it's the largest, oldest um, environmental organization on the planet, 64 chapters, uh, a governance body of about 7,000 leaders across the country making decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, with a base somewhere around between, you know, three and four million at this point, is one of the largest bases outside of organized labor. Um, and it has a um, right-sized influence in the movement it helped spark. So uh, wanting to take a look at how we could uh, intervene in a movement that had had some really problematic uh, origins and some negative impacts on communities of color and the environmental movement, as well as the climate justice and environmental justice movement, was really trying to get in and understand what, what that looked like and is there a way in which we could bring them in deeper alignment with, with those movements I spoke about, the environmental movement, the environmental justice, uh, progressive wings of the environmental movement, uh, the progressive end of the environmental justice and climate justice movements. Um, and also we wanted to figure out what it was like to try to organize white people uh, against white supremacy. It was uh, the largest base of, um, of mostly white environmentalists in the country, but it was also inside of an organization that had some problem, it had taken problematic positions um, and left to its own devices would most likely continue to take problematic uh, positions on, on issues that were critical to moving um, us to a different place of justice as it relates to addressing climate change. Um, so we looked at that and wanted to figure out how could we actually govern at scale? What did it actually look like? How could we actually begin to, to move and build organizations to the size and scale that we actually needed to to make the appropriate uh, momentum in order to make the types of policy and movement changes we needed in order to get to a, to a more just um, a just world that we were looking for. And as I said in the article, I've been heavily influenced by some other um, forms of organization like the Black Panther Party, the Brown Berets, American Indian Movement, and their ability to move uh, their agendas across geographies by having chapter structures. And with 64 chapters, a chapter in every state, I didn't know much about that at that scale. And so I wanted to get in there and look like, what did little B democracy actually look like uh, at that level? Um, in somewhat of a federated um, organizational structure where you had a national um, unit and staff across the country in service of volunteer-based chapters and, and states taking on local and regional issues culminating to um, uh, national level support for particular campaigns. Seems like the this current situation started, I guess, in the spring. I, I remember reading something about it. Do you want to kind of Talk a little bit about what's kind of this this kind of more what was like six months ago or not even six months ago probably um, I don't know I don't know what to call it a crisis or situation or conditions or whatever but you know it seems like since the spring something happened there and this is you know kind of created some problems. Yeah, well, let me start. I would say it goes much farther back than that. It's not just institutionally or uh, situated within the Sierra Club. This is a much larger. Uh, phenomenon that was happening inside the social, political, and cultural context of the United States, which was 
before we had this anti-woke movement, there was actually the movement against CRT, critical race theory, which uh, the right wing had began attacking, which of course, you know, people familiar with that um, got conflated. It wasn't something that was being taught in middle or uh, middle school or high schools. It was actually something that was taught at the collegiate level, which didn't make a difference to the right wing in their attacks uh, around it, but really trying to go at any critical uh, analysis of racialized formations, gender formations, et cetera, inside the United States. Uh, starting back with um, like the doctrine of discovery, manifest destiny, and what that actually meant for the enslavement of Africans people, Africans people, and the um, genocide of indigenous people, right? That telling of the history um, was very problematic to uh, conservative forces. And I would say both on the right wing and within liberal uh, to progressive organizations because it threatened the status quo in a way in which um, they were not uh, willing to accept. So going far back as to that, this movement against, um, I think, telling a more liberated, honest telling of history, both uh, historically from the United States perspective and internal to those specific organizations around those founders was being pushed back. And it was a response. Uh, moving from the attack against critical race theory to this attack on wokeness, um, manifests itself within our own institution. And over the course of the last several years, I would say um, the conservative wing within our institution had been making noise about our own uh, truth-telling, about John Muir, Canton, uh, and a number of other founders who were part and in, um, uh, very instrumental into movements like the Genesis movement. Um, and that telling didn't sit well. So as we move forward um, to the anti-woke movement, um, there were several board elections within our institution. And I feel that the more conservative um, elements of our institution began to take more seats on the board and gain more influence. So leading to um, this um, resettling, resetting of the chess table in some ways. And so they were able to um, bring in um, new people with different ideas that were contrary to, I believe, what we've been doing over the past decade in terms of really trying to get the organization to come to grips with um, not just the racist history of the, of the United States and its formation, the racist formation of the environmental movement, but also uh, Sierra Club's role in helping promote policies and campaigns that were, that were problematic and less beneficial to black and brown communities. Yeah, I mean, I'll just, pick up on then, yeah, the last six months in particular as Hop, you know, Hop is given the longer history, but um, for me coming in only a year ago, you know, it actually was quite a shock <laughs> to see how um, at least on the staff and chapter level, you know, membership level, what I had seen was a real shift to um you know an anti-rape to to the the kind of values that the board had adopted you know around anti-racism balance collaboration transformation justice you know um and we were doing that in all kinds of ways including you know working to be transparent and accountable at multi you know across the organization um and so what happened really in like January, February of this year, or started in February, like was for me, I'll say like pretty shocking, um, the level of 
um, sort of affront to the way we had been moving and the direction that we'd been going. Um, the lack of transparency that took place or that has continued to kind of play out in the way that this restructuring done in the name of budget cut has um, has occurred. And, you know, there's been just a massive um, impact on the organization's ability, I believe, to even just carry out its work, you know, um, it anyone who knows anything about institutional or organizational transformation knows like you can't just upheaval, you know, turn complete, completely over the organization and expect it to figure out how to suddenly function again the next morning. So there's just a lot of, um, a lot of work that has to be done, a lot of new ground that has to be laid, um, a lot of trust that has to be rebuilt. Um, once we are, you know, once the organization actually gets back onto a, a justice oriented track, I would say. Um, and we don't even really know the numbers of how many staff were laid off, you know, who and what, you know, just as an example, you know, I, I was laid off on May 10th and given like 30 minutes basically to like, um, send whatever emails I needed to send before my email was shut down. Right. So I sent an email to my unit to let them know I have a, you know, there's a hundred people that I was responsible for to let them know like, Hey, y'all, I'm not here anymore. Right. Like just as an example of kind of how these changes are happening. Cause I knew that there wasn't going to be a lot of, um, there wasn't already a lot of transparency and explanation of what was going on and why it was happening and what where we were moving towards in contrast to the way we had been doing things, which, you know, was doing, you know, real like deeper organizational transformation, which, you know, I was told as I was hired, like, don't look at this as a year, you know, a year of work and you're, you can be out, you know, this has to be like a five-year at least um, project. Because as we know, like these, you know, these shifts take time. Um, and we were making strides that I, you know, I just, I just think it's a real, um, yeah, it's a real shame at this time on the clock of the world that <laughs> we've kind of done the somersault and, you know, everything's topsy-turvy now. It went from like a period of, and like, you know, a lot of this work was happening before Michelle and I got there. I've been there at the organization for nine years, like one year as a consultant and eight years as staff. And there are plenty of people before us um, and while the time that we both have been there that have paid the price for trying to be on the road of justice inside of uh, the Sierra Club and other movements that we are connected to. You know, so to put it into a, a more specific context of that trajectory that I was laying out inside the Sierra Club, we had been following prior to the summer of 2020 with the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey. We'd already been working inside the organization to get it to a place of recognizing that the climate crisis was a product of the legacy of colonialism, slavery, and racist policies and structures, right? Those are pretty significant places to get the organization to really begin to examine its own history in relationship to how um, public lands have been, had been um, preserved and what that meant for indigenous communities and what that meant for black and brown communities. Um, to get to a place where and it, and it wasn't so much the restructuring itself. Organizations restructure all the time. It's the process by which they restructure. And it's the same thing about moving towards a just transition, right? 
um, justice can't be an afterthought because it's never thought of. And in this process, it seemed uh, in stark contrast to the to the way in which transparency was happening around budgeting, decision making, and participatory dem democratic processes that the organization was in, was internalizing and beginning to incorporate in mass. To go from that to one of the first steps of the new administration's decision making about the restructuring was to get rid of the equity department. So without any real plan or at least that none that we knew of, and we were some of the most senior leaders inside the institution that had been on this track of developing and, and helping um, move the um, equity work in the organization without any plan for what that, how that work was going to continue, where the funding was going to come from, and how it was going to be incorporated to every aspect of, of our work. So to go from uh, that to the other side of the coin with nothing, as Michelle said, was, was pretty stark and traumatic for many folks. Did, did the board, when they announced this restructuring, say it was due to kind of economic issues, economic problems? Was Were they saying they weren't getting enough like fundraising or? Yeah, I mean, th there were there were budget gaps. Um, and I mean, Hop can tell you there there was there were years and years of actually there was a BIPOC um, committee that was formed in was it 2020? Um, yes, 2020. That what that that named that you know cuts would need to be made um shifts would have to be done um and so but the organization pushed it further and further downfield so yes um it was said to be about budget cuts but you know i mean there were ways to solve that budget gap that wouldn't have created such traumatic um, and and like tumultuous impacts. Yeah, as I said before, it wasn't the restructuring that still was a problem. We had forecasted that years before. It's just a process by which the restructuring happened. And, you know, for folks who are working inside the nonprofit industrial complex, and let's be real, most of us who consider ourselves progressives or leftists are probably in some form of 501c3. Very few of us are fortunate enough to exchange our labor in this capitalist market in, a, in an institution that isn't part of a, a larger systemic structure, right? And so when we looked at what needed to happen, there's a way in which to do that, which would, as Michelle mentioned, could minimize the amount of trauma and continue to prioritize what we've been working on previously. And I think for most people who are inside the nonprofit industrial complex, uh, look at your organization's budget, not what they say and put on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter in terms of a response to something, but what is the budget actually saying? Because it tells a story. The narrative of your justice work inside your institution can be told by reviewing the priorities inside your budget. And had, you know, and up until this point, we, we had just developed our organization's um, first ever set of values. The organization's 139 years old. It had not had a set of codified values until then. We had just uh, come out of our first strategic plan. The organization didn't have a strategic plan prior to a few years ago. We were going into our second strategic plan and into our strategic framework. So there were a number of, of, of ways in which we were trying to institutionalize our justice orientation that now seem to be up in, up in air that have been de deprioritized or it's not clear where they're being prioritized in our budgets. So again, for those folks who are in nonprofit um, organizations 
and you're trying to make sure that these changes are sustainable, make sure they get codified into the organization's budget because that's what's really going to keep the work moving, even when there are these shifts, because we know there are going to be shifts. But that doesn't mean your priorities need to need to change drastically or you completely wipe, wipe the board. There ought to be a transition. There ought to be a way in which we think about how do we actually sustain this work through these tumultuous times in order to keep the organization on the trajectory that it's on. One, one question I have is that, you know, the Sierra Club had some recently, you know, the new leadership came in, you know, before this. And I'm, I'm you know, that person was probably, Ben Jealous was probably hired by the board. And I'm wondering if there's, what, is there any, you know, role, what role did, did he play? Was he, was this, was this coming from the board or is this coming from the new leadership? Or, I mean, it could also be, also be speculation, but. I'll let Michelle take that. I was unfortunately not in a lot of those meetings, but as one would expect when a new director comes in, they have some say on what happens moving forward. I would imagine it's not just one person, but a a, a number of decision makers in there. But I, once again, I wasn't in those rooms and I don't know exactly how it all went down. Yeah, I mean, I think similarly, um, I mean, I can speak from my own experience, which was, you know, I was the director of the campaigns unit, which brought in the most 501c3, you know, funding. So I was responsible for the largest portion of the C3 budget and um, uh, or carrying out that work, I should say. And I went from being instrumental in the budget budgeting process that we were doing as the program department leadership team to being completely cut out of the process and out of the rooms. Um, so, you know, that happened basically overnight when Ben came on, you know, in late February. Um, you know, I think like, like Hop said, he had a very clear idea of, you know, bringing in people he trusted and um, he did a lot of that. There's a lot of new folks that have joined senior leadership um, who he's worked with before. And a lot of folks, you know, who are not there anymore, you know, like Hop and I and others. And, you know, I want to name, especially Hop referred to this, you know, in what he was saying that there's a lot of black women that have been really working to put the Sierra Club on, you know, a, a more transparent, equitable, democratic and justice oriented path for years and years who are gone now. Um, and I, yeah, I think, I think that's really important to name because I think it can be, um, you know, what, what one story that's being told right now is Sierra Club has the first black um, executive director in its history, um, which could have been a big, you know, sign of progress if it were continuing to move the organization in the right direction. Um, but the fact that that has come at a cost of losing people who had been moving the organization on that trajectory um, should should be a real like marker for folks um, that that story is not true. How, how many people were laid off? or fired or however they turn. Yeah, we don't have, I don't have, we don't have access to the actual numbers. I, we think it's something about some, you know, somewhere over, um, you know, hundred people were, you know, significantly impacted. Um, but again, I think, you know, the call for transparency is, is there and hasn't been answered. So um, that's really 
important. Were these most likely people who were kind of more involved in like environmental justice or kind of those those kind of issues, justice issues? Well, the um, environmental justice, the Healthy Communities campaign was disbanded. Yeah. Um, along with the equity team, you know, there were other campaigns um, and so forth that were, but, you know, especially, yeah, the environmental justice campaign. Um, yeah. And, and, and I'll say that, like, you know, there were complications with how the Sierra Club has always sort of siloed different parts of the organization. So there did need to be work to integrate environmental justice and climate justice across our campaigns and across the work of the organization. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think you do that by just, you know, getting rid of everybody on the ground who has built the trust with communities, you know, like, like right away. Um, one, one question I have is that, you know, the, the Sierra Club is unionized, maybe even by two different unions. Um, if I recall correctly, how, how has the union responded to this? Yes, Sierra Club is unionized by two unions, um, Progressive Workers Union and C uh, SEA, um, Sierra Employee Alliance. And um, yeah, I think there's been, it's it's been very challenging. Um, the union, you know, I can't speak for the union, you know, of course, um, um, but I think the union has been very challenged at by the way that the the leadership has done kind of an about face in terms of, you know, collegial management labor relations that had before been the way of the Sierra Club. Um, there's just been a lot of um, negotiations and back and forth, you know, filings of um, unfair labor practices and et cetera, et cetera, you know, like, so um, um, I think that's been very challenging. Yeah. So just to put it in context, the Sierra Club at this point, and I don't know the exact numbers right now, what where the employment levels exactly were, but somewhere between 725 to 800 staff, paid staff, both at the national level, including chapter staff. Um, and so folks have been let go across, across the institution in almost every department. Um, and again, restructuring isn't something that that's new, but the, but the, process by which the restructuring happened is what's the most drawing because it is a it is diametrically opposed to how we actually got to this place in terms of there being transparency um broad input it's a completely different decision making orientation that's happening inside the organization that is counter to what had been happening and developing and building over the last 10 years both internally having some impacts and externally with our partners on the ground and in communities and so i think that's the that's the um that's the crux of, of the challenge of what's happening. Many relationships built up the speed of trust that took decades to build because of the very problematic way in which the Sierra Club had entered into communities previously and um, kind of ran roughshod over community will and desire for work, not consultating about particular campaigns and then kind of airlifting in and deciding kind of how that was. And, and many of us came in and reoriented that work to say, no, we've actually got to enter the communities in partnership and relationship by first listening to communities and seeing what's going on with them. Who are the leaders that are already, you know, we can't go into Columbus, all this environmental work as if there was no work ever being done around it. There's inherent leaders and organizational structures within these communities already addressing these issues. And we ought to be in a different type of relationship with them rather than dictating 
what types of policies and campaigns uh, begin to come around. And so these shifts represent a pretty significant shift because many of those people who've been engaged in developing those relationships over that time are no longer present. So there's a huge gap in between what's happening now and what's happening on the ground and who's there to help. Like Michelle said, many of us from one day to the next were there one day and not the next day. And so there wasn't a real opportunity to transfer those relationships um, and to build that type of trust or to um, shore up those relationships in a way that would then lead. Because many communities ain't going to mess with the Sierra Club. They've already made the decision because of many of the things like the population bomb, a book written by one of our members, encouraged by one of our directors that really put the blame for environmental degradation on both communities of color nationally and internationally, right? Uh, it's organizational um, anti-immigration stance. And many communities remember those things. And so it's taken a lot of time to rebuild those relationships, actually make amends for the trauma that was caused by those decisions, and then get back to a place of, of consultative leadership with those communities. And I think that is um, all in question right now. Hey folks, you're listening to the Green and Red podcast, where we interview guests like Noam Chomsky and Andrew Basevich. We also have shows on cultural icons like John Cash and Woody Guthrie and the Godfather movies. And we talk to scores of organizers and activists who tell us what is happening in the streets and in the back country. So check us out. Yeah, and I'm Bob Azenko. And as always, uh, Scott and I want to thank you for listening, for watching, for supporting us. Uh, and we hope we continue to do that. The first thing we ask is that you share this, let people know that we're out there and we're doing something that I think is different. We have a good niche, I think, in left podcast. And uh, we talk to really cool people and, uh, about really important issues. Um, follow us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, go to our webpage, which is on uh, in the screen. And, uh, um, you know, if you really like us and if you have a, a, a little uh, extra change around um, jingles or folds, uh, uh, you can help us out by going to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hitting that support button and make a one-time donation. Or you can check us out at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a patron. Uh, we'll see you again real soon. So, you know, with the with the changes, with the restructuring that has happened and it's had an impact on, uh, you know, environmental justice work going on at Sierra Club, is there any, you know, is, is, is there still potential for environmental justice work to be happening there? Is it still happening? Uh, I, I know both of you aren't on the inside anymore, but like I'm just from what you've what you've seen. And then also, you know, this also begs a bigger question, which is, you know, how how does the left, whether it's the institutional left or whether it's, you know, the grassroots left, you know, respond to the climate crisis, which is like the, you know, the big elephant in the room. Yeah, as you said, Michelle and I aren't internal to the organization anymore, but we're still connected to staff, volunteers and members who are still connected directly to the organization. And, you know, we're connected to those movements that we helped in part bring into relationship with the Sierra Club, as well as those who were pre-existing uh, in relationship with the Sierra Club. And this work is uh, too important. And as we said in the article, we, we can't give up on United Fronts. And we and there is a role for organizations and institutions like the Sierra Club, whether, you know, when the mainstream environmental movement, the progressive wings of the environmental movement, environmental justice, climate, 
to be in relationship with each other in order to move to a place where we can secure the types of wins at the scale and magnitude that we need in order to make interventions towards addressing climate change and getting closer to liberation. So that work is continuing. Uh, Michelle and I are in relationship and conversation with folks, folks internal and external to figure out what that work looks like in the short, middle, and long term. Um, it's yet to be determined on the direction of the, or of the organization and its ultimate orientation towards the previous justice work and in response to what's happening within the context of the U.S. social movements um, inside the United States right now. Yeah, I mean, I'll just I'll just um, respond a little bit to your second question, Scott. Like, in terms of what should the U.S. left be doing in response to the climate crisis? I mean, um, we have to understand this crisis as a crisis um, of governance, right? It is the crisis of taking the decision making out of the hands of the peoples who are most impacted by those decisions. And so what, you know, what I believe we really need is like um, a move towards permanently organized communities, which means we are organizing to, um, to build our collective self-governance capacity to stop what's harming us, stop what's killing us, stop what's destroying the life support systems that we depend on, and by building the new, by building the, the ways of taking care of each other, um, of the land um, in ways that directly confront the system that's robbing us of our capacity to do that, right? That's robbing us of the land and of our, um, of our ability to control our own labor um, and instead applying that, you know, towards um, a regenerative, economies, you know, like, so yeah, and I, and I actually think that Sierra Club structure, you know, as to Hop's wise point, you know, like the chapter structure really provides for that kind of a, um, a, a vehicle for permanently organized communities, you know, it's like, it's kind of like, uh, it lines up very well, right, once the Sierra Club is doing the kind of anti-racism, um, just transition, like education across chapters, across members, um, to make sure those spaces are safe and like vibrant spaces that are moving towards that kind of a North Star, um, which I believe members are, are doing, like members are helping to lead that kind of work in their chapters um, across the organization. Like that's part of why I was there, <laughs> you know, it was like, um, and I heard that from people time and time again, you know, in, in rooms that I would enter not knowing a soul, like people would come up to me and say like, we're so glad you're here because we've been trying to move the organization in this direction. Um, and then I would say to the, to the question about like, what do folks do who are in these institutions, right? Hop and I are not inside the Sierra Club anymore, but we know many folks. I mean, the folks that are organized in unions are really working to create an organized response and, um, and, and, push the organization towards transformative goals, right? They're not only, I think unions can be um, sometimes seen as just focused on bread and butter issues, but our experience of the unions at the Sierra Club, are they, they're there, you know, workers are there to transform the economy, you know? And, and so um, the union can be a really strong and important partner and a, and a place for folks to 
a, a place for leftists to do that work. Um, and I think we also need, when we're in those institutions, um, political homes outside of the institution to help hold us accountable and keep us tethered to a, a greater North Star, because it is very alienating and disorienting to be in these large nonprofit institutions that feel like a world of their own. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's great. And I would say, you know, um, to Michelle's point about the unions, the Progressive Workers Union, they changed their name. And they used to be something like John Muir Local. Uh, they went through a process of, as the organization was reevaluating its relationship to its founders, uh, changed its name. And I would say to, to leftists inside of these organizations, try to start a union. I think the PWU has a mission to try to unionize um, a, a large portion of the environmental sector. And that's one test of your organization's commitment to justice is just try to start a union and see what happens. Um, because um, that can give you some kind of idea of the real orientation of your organization. You know, of course, do your homework and figure out um, if that's the intervention to make at that time or if there's particular uh, moves that need to be made to get to that place. But that's one place of trying to just organize your 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 workplace. Uh, another one I'd say is develop, um, you know, kind of get grounded in the moment that we're that we're in and get grounded in the organization that you're in and what it thinks its role is, and not just by yourself, but with the group of people try to figure out what could the role look like and how do you play a role um, in the larger struggle for liberation, regardless of what, what it is that you're, you're doing. And I think developing hypotheses about how you might then be able to organize yourself, you know, and for us, you know, we, we were looking at what if we were able to or organize white middle-class environmentalists to develop an anti-racist kind of root cause analysis of the climate catastrophe. Could we then create the conditions that didn't exist before that would allow the Sierra Club to move into a, a large united front with the progressive wing of the environmental climate justice movements? And by doing so, could we move white middle-class environmentalists to an anti-racist orientation that allowed them then to see their role to take on a white supremacy front and center as a way of addressing many of the other social ills uh, by de having developed that root cause analysis? And then, figuring out ways in which to test those hypotheses that you come up with. And I think also understanding what the bigger we is that we're, we're talking about here, who's your big, who's your we, and who's the bigger we inside the progressive movement. And I would say that, you know, that's the larger array of forces who are opposed against extractivism, sacrifice, and disposability, right? And inside that bigger we, everyone isn't going to be anti-imperialist. Everyone isn't going to be anti-capitalist. You're going to have liberal institutions and liberal activists and organizers inside, inside that bigger we. And if we kind of move away from a little bit of the purity politics and think everyone's got to be this or everyone's got to be that, we just don't have those numbers just yet. We haven't created the conditions to organize and work with folks to move them to uh, a place of that analytical position. And we can take some lessons in history where we've had broader we's that could take on uh, these issues. And I think we, we, we've got to get back to a place of really trying to figure out who the bigger we is and organizing them in such a way to, to get a united front so we can not just deal with the attacks that are coming at us, but actually move towards uh, building the new um, as we're resisting and fighting the bad. Uh, one question I have is, I, I think it's in the Convergence article, 
it, there's like mention of the of the new leadership's connection to green capital. Could we could we talk actually about that a little bit? Is that uh, something that we're going to be seeing? I, I know you know they just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which actually seems to be a a big funnel of green capital into like lots of different industries. You know, renewables, yay, and you know, uh, fuel efficient vehicles, kind of yay. Sometimes not, but also into like nuclear and you know other false solutions like that. And I, I'm just wondering what you see as the the role of green capital in both like an institution like the Sierra Club and in this sort of like greater challenge, you know, to the to the climate crisis. Yeah. Um, so look, we're, I mean, we all feel it, right. We feel it in our bodies right now. Um, the, like the moment, um, on the planet is markedly different than even three years ago. <laughs> like, um, uh, it's clear from the economy and the way that things are rapidly shifting. It's clear from the fact that every county in the country has had a climate disaster now, you know, like on and on and on, right? Um, and um, and so, you know, if we if we understand that as like transition is inevitable, justice is not. Um, the question is, who's going to lead that transition? And you know, gray capital, fossil fuel is one possibility, green capital, um, which in this case, when I, you know, when I talk about that, I'm saying like the forces of capital that are just like wielding capital still as power over to dictate and determine the development of the economy, right? Towards, in this case, quote unquote, green um, uh, outcomes like for example, electrifying everything, right? Um, what that means to electrify everything is, in my view, to electrify exploitation and and you know extraction, right? Like it is going to continue to drive um, an extractive economy in maybe some new directions, sure, but it's investing some of the last precious resources that have been extracted from black people, indigenous people, the land, you know, immigrants, um, and using that to direct the development of the economy in a particular way that continues to perpetuate inequity and growth, you know, like at any cost. Um, and so, and, you know, so that's when I talk about green capital, I'm talking about like you know, the fact that Oxy Petroleum just bought the largest carbon capture, you know, direct action, direct air capture company in the world. So now does it become a green, you know, company because it's cleaning up, quote unquote, the environment, you know, they, you know, I'm, um, BP, BP's but, going into solar, right? Brian's sure, Petroleum. Yeah, the largest solar companies are, right? So um, similarly, hydrogen is being talked about, right, as this new green you know, potential, but all it's doing in California is extending the life of gas pipelines, right? The gas companies are, are fighting for it, right? So carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, like all, all these like geoengineering fixes are now what's on the agenda as the ways to extend the life of this extractive economy, right? And that's what we have to really see is like, we cannot at this point um, maintain and extend the life either of the fossil fuel industry or of, I would say, utility scale um, 
energy systems, right? We have to move to from centralized to decentralized, democratized, um, diversified forms of energy system where people are actually more in um, relationship to the way we use land, you know, um, the the ways we get energy. Um, um, yeah, so like energy democracy versus centralized um, utility systems, right? And I, I guess I want to say one more thing is that in this transition, what we're what we're seeing, what we know is that um, there are going to be shocks increasingly as we're also experiencing slides, right? So what Hop was talking about, you know, um, of how are we going to make these shifts, right? It's really important to be working with folks where they're at right now, but also understand that as the shocks happen, just as 2020 brought a real like awakening and racial recognizing, reckoning moment for white people um, and, and non-Black people, right, to understand um, the crisis on a different, in a different way, there are going to be, continue to be shocks that provide for psychic breaks and openings and moving towards the kinds of transformation that is necessary. Um, and that's what we have to be ready for because we're in relationship to groups of people who have who the ground has been readied for them to start to pivot and become part of the leadership of developing permanently organized communities you know that are actually organized to respond and win the kinds of shifts that we've always needed but we need now more than ever we need to begin to you know take it upon ourselves to think about what does it actually look like to move towards a uh, just transition and away from extractive systems that demand sacrifice and exploitation. And what does it look like to move to systems and structures that value people and the planet in ways in which are regenerative in nature? And that's not just in terms of, that's, that's all encompassing. How does it impact the way in which we make decisions? How does it impact the way in which we have transparency about the economic decisions that are being made? How does it impact the way in which we decide where um, where things are going to happen and how they're going to happen. That's a larger part of, of, of what this is, was talking about. The, when, when a fossil fuel heavy company, corporation, buys a quote unquote green company, you, you've done nothing but transfer the one particular framework to a to, an, to a framework that has the potential to be something different, but actually is using the same operating platform and structure that was it was based on before, which is hyper-exploitation, sacrifice, and exploitation. So what have you done different than you did before? And I think having some of the same, the same thinking, same people and same institutional formation in charge of the green transition is not going to get us anything different than we had before. It's just going to put a new package on an old, on an on an old product, and that's what that's what I want to say. And I think in terms of thinking about institutions like the Sierra Club or wherever it is that your listeners are listening from, it's important to move them into um, relationship uh, to align them in relationship with progressive um, um, forces within the climate justice and environmental justice movement. And by doing so, at least our hope was, and we saw <clears throat> benefit from this, was that 
It would have an impact on other largest small institutions, on philanthropy, on elected officials, in order to move them towards more progressive positions. You know, um, land back and reparations are inseparable from one another. We're not going to get one without the other. You know, climate justice is inseparable from racial justice. So we're not going to get one without the other. And we're not going to get them with what we have arrayed in front of us now. We actually need to bring more people into alignment and into formation, as we like to say, in order to secure these victories. And that takes a lot of hard work because securing those victories are going to mean improvements to the material conditions for working class, working poor, trans um, women, people of color, indigenous communities. And we need to, we can't afford to leave these institutions alone. Leaving them alone means that they're going to continue to get organized into systems and structures of white supremacy. Uh, we are out of time. So I'm going to leave it there. I think that was a good way to, a good way to close. I want to thank Michelle and Hop for joining us today. Uh, it's been a, a great conversation. Uh, folks, you've been listening to the Green and Red podcast. We've been talking about the Sierra Club, uh, the nonprofit industrial complex, and how these institutions are facing the climate crisis and not always doing it well. Um, if you like what you're hearing, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. If you like what you're hearing, check out greenandredpodcast.org and hit support and make a donation or become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast michelle and hop it's been a pleasure having you i've been looking forward to this episode for a while so glad you're able to join us today thanks so much scott thanks for having me and everyone else out there misbehave and make a lot of trouble talk to y'all later mm -hmm.